Made It. Made It. Made It. Is a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Previously on Made It. And Des called me and she was like, I'm going to get high. You want to come? You want the truth? Fuck. Here we go again. So I knew something was wrong. If she dies. Recoveries first. Choose Your Struggle presents Made It, Season 1, Stay Savage. H&H Books is Kensington's nonprofit publisher and indie bookstore where words and worlds collide in the form of workshops, readings, innovative events, and of course, books. Our curated collection of children's middle grade used and new titles Offer a glimpse into our ever-evolving love of great writing. Come by and discover what's in store at H&H Books or find us on the web at www.theheadandthehand.com. Like when she was in the hospital, day day two, she said to me, Mom, I, I'm going to do something. We got to do something. Start something, a movement to help people recover. I said, yes, we are. She's like, no, mom, really, seriously, we're going to do something. I said, we are going to do something. All you have to do is stay where you are for today and begin, and we will do something. While she didn't know it at the time, Sarah's recent traumatic event would end up being the catalyst that would provide the change in the birth of Savage Sisters. At that moment, however, Sarah was focused more on her recovery, which, as it always is early in recovery, was incredibly fragile. Unfortunately for Sarah, her first test would come sooner than she thought. Welcome to Episode 8 of Choose Your Struggle Presents Made It, Season 1, Stay Savage. I just remember being in my bedroom and like freezing, completely freezing. And I said, let me call you right back. And I hung the phone up and I got down on my knees and I was like, please don't let me go get high. Please don't let me go get high. And my phone rang. Like... And I don't have these kinds of moments, if that makes sense. You know, like I hear, I used to hear people say stuff like this and I was like, that would have been nice if something like that happened for me. I was still on my knees when my phone rang and it was this woman named Candace from Keystone Treatment Facility in Chester. And I had been there so many times and she said, she's all bubbly. Sarah, it's Candace. I got your number from your mom and she said, you're sober. And I was like, uh, okay. And she's like, I just switched desks. She was my counselor like 15 times. She's like, I just switched desks and I found your ID. So I contacted your mom because she's your emergency contact and she gave me your cell phone number. So I wanted to let you know I have it. It was behind my desk when I moved to desks. And she was like, how you doing? And I don't remember what I said, to be honest. And then she said, well, do you ever want to come in and speak to the group? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, when? And she was like, can you come today at one? And I, I just said, yes. I said, yes. I hung up the phone and I went upstairs and then I didn't think like, this is a God moment. I had forgotten about Des by that point, you know, because I like, that was how quickly my brain shifted in those moments in that early recovery time. I went upstairs and I got cluddy and I was like, come on, poodle, we're going to, we're going to Keystone. And I went and I told my little story and, but in that moment, I got distracted from going to get high with Des. And I did something that was more purposeful. And Des kind of went in and out, in and out. And, you know, we, 
obviously always talk to each other, but I was, um, I got really busy. I got really busy with like what I was doing with Savage and like my own work. And, um, yeah. There's a saying that some of us in recovery strongly believe in, that there are really two major dates in your recovery. Obviously, the first is whenever you get into recovery. But the second, in, in my opinion, almost more important, is when you first open up about it, when you first start talking about it. It's a major weight off your shoulders. And it's a major community building moment. Because when you tell your story, other people tell theirs too. So that moment for Sarah came very early. And as you can hear, it was incredibly powerful. Now, besides Des, there was another important person in Sarah's life at this time. Claudia and I were in jail together too. <laughs> so much fun. Uh, yeah, so Claudia was like, she was my everything at that point. Um, we were together every single day, obviously. We lived together. We listened to music together. We watched TV together. We went to meetings together. Every, every activity we were together for. Every holiday for years. She just helped me, you know? Um, we laughed, though. That first year with me and Claudia, we laughed so much. She was such a huge part of me staying sober because I don't think I would laughed like that. The only other time that I had laughed like that was with Des in jail when we were in cell 112. <laughs> and we were locked in constantly because I couldn't keep my mouth shut and the CO hated me. So Des would, I, <laughs> she would always be like, Sarah, please don't get us locked in today. <laughs> Um, and we would just be stuck in this little tiny cell together, just cracking up about the dumbest shit. And that was kind of how it was with Claudia and I. We kind of treated it like jail. It was cold. We stayed inside. We we laughed a lot. And um, we did the intakes. And our in, our version of intakes for new residents was like, what up? <laughs> like, we were not super official. Um, but she spoke with me. She helped me run the house and check chores and do urines and we went and did everything together. <sighs> if I were a more poetic person, I'd have something beautiful to say right now about how the ghosts of all these people are still with Sarah all these years later, and their very blood runs through the veins of Savage Sisters. But I'm not, so we'll leave it at that. Instead, let's push on to just a few months later when she met another person who would have a huge impact on her life. His name was Pete, and he plays a major role in this story. I have this vivid memory of Claudia. He came to the recovery house to help us put up the tree because he was in a men's recovery house. And we didn't know, like, we needed help putting together some furniture for one of the new men's house, for one of the new recovery houses that we were opening. And then we needed help putting a tree up. And we didn't like him. He was just like a beefcake and like, you know, it was like tan and like, like just, uh. And so Claudia and I, at that point, like, Claudia was gay and I wasn't, talking to men at that point i was like so fucking dead inside like men would like ask for my number and i was like i don't have a phone I actually i believe for several years a couple of years people thought that claudia and i were a couple we weren't but we didn't care who cares it kept the guys away but pete had come over and um when he was done i think he thought that we were gonna like hang out and he was gonna like be able to like hang out and like put his arm around me and chill and i was like um you can go and Claudia got a broom and she like swept him out the door, like in a joking way, because that was just how Claudia was. And she was like, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> and he just like looked at me all surprised. And I was like, sorry, bye, bro. 
And then he just kind of kept hitting me up. And uh, I noticed him and we started dating and we took it kind of slow. And I wanted to work. I was working in like a real estate office very briefly and he needed help doing some flooring stuff and he paid good. And so I was like, yo, like, um, I'm good with physical stuff. Like, let me help. So I started helping and we started dating and it was so kind of natural. Up to this point, Savage Sisters existed more as a dream than reality. But as usually is the case with this tight-knit group, Sarah turned to another member of the family to make it real. That member was Adam, and he was more than happy to step in. At that point, Sarah became the house manager, and she was talking to me, and she was like, look, I've been fighting with this, this owner of this house because he's not providing us with like any of the shit we need. And she was like, and I got a whole house full of people, and I want to start a recovery house program. And she knew I was, at the time, in, about to buy a house. Uh, I'd been saving up. I'd been working full-time for five, uh, not five years. I've been working full-time for four years. Uh, as a direct care worker, taking care of a really awesome guy named Tommy in a wheelchair with muscular dystrophy um, while going to CCP and saved up enough money to buy a house. Didn't want to pay rent anymore. And I was going to move into it. And Sarah was like, let me have your house to start this recovery house program. And, you know, I really I wanted to do it because I wanted to help my sister in any way that I possibly could. I was beyond excited to see her living life again. It was um, having her back was it was incredible. Up until she got into her addiction, having Sarah in my life was having somebody who was able to help me in with everything that I ever needed. And afterwards, it was, I was able to help her. Um, and it was, uh, it just felt right. And I wanted to help her in any way I possibly could. So she had me on that. But then she also is an excellent salesperson. And she convinced me that it would be an excellent business venture. You know, I, I ended up getting the house and she ended up moving in and starting her program. And at first it was just her program. I wasn't there to help her with Savage Sisters. I was just, I, I just helped her get the house. That's all I did. She started the program by herself. I just helped her with the resources to make it happen. And it was incredible. Um, she, she made it happen and she made sure the mortgage was paid every month. The, the crazy numbers she had originally predicted certainly didn't come to be, which is why we inevitably realized that there's absolutely no way to provide all the resources that we wanted to provide to the people we were serving um, without support from the community, which is why we very quickly decided it would be best to become a nonprofit. I'm sure it's not a surprise to you, but nobody in this family does anything half-assed. And so from almost the moment that Savage Sisters started, people in the community started to take notice. One of those community members was a woman named Shannon, and she's still with the organization today. You'll hear more from her over the next couple episodes. Here she is. I was about three, three years sober. So I think I was like coming out of my insanity period in the beginning of my sobriety and like starting to come to a realization that more work needed to be done. She was immediately drawn to Sarah and Savage Sisters. Having a safe space for women in new and recovery is obviously something that any woman wants to see other women stay sober. We exchanged numbers the first day. You know, I eventually met her sister Liz at another meeting and was all excited because I you know, hadn't met her b before when she said she was Sarah's sister. I was like, oh my God, that's so amazing. I love her. As Savage Sisters grew, Sarah's place in the community grew with it. At the same time, she was trying to juggle a new relationship with Pete, 
who wanted to take things a little bit faster than Sarah was comfortable with. He, he wanted, he was just so fucking mushy, dude. He was like, I love you and you're so beautiful and you're so amazing. And I was like, bro, don't get attached. Like, I'm dead inside. I'm, I don't want to get married ever. He kept talking about getting married. And I was like, I don't want to ever get married. I don't want that for me. And like, that was important to him. You know, he, he said he loved me for a few months before I responded to it. And I, I didn't want to do that with a man. Like, I just was like, look, we work together. We have, we have good sex. Like, just like, can we keep it the fuck light? You know? And like, he wouldn't. And eventually I kind of gave into it. And I was just like, okay, I love you. He sat me down and he was like, I'm, I want to marry you. And I was like, no, like I said no so many times. And he goes, well, I'm going to your mom. And he was like, and I'm gonna, he was like, will you marry me? Like, what, can you, just, I'm not going to do this if you're not going to agree to it. And I was like, fine. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I didn't know that he had talked to my mom yet. Apparently he had. My mom told me about that later. And um, then he died. Yeah, he relapsed and died. Yeah. So if you've been listening, and I don't know why you would be on episode eight if you hadn't been. You know that this entire show should come with one giant trigger warning. Uh, obviously, this is another one. You remember how at the end of the last episode I said it's not really a U, it's sort of a backwards J with some squiggly lines, and this is one of those squiggly lines. The rest of this episode is going to get dark, so just uh, be prepared for that. But first, let's take a break. Here's this episode's podcast recommendation brought to you by... Great pods. This is Amanda Love, the host of Covering All Aspects of Holistic Health with Amanda Love. This podcast started with fibromyalgia, but it has become more than that. This podcast covers all aspects of holistic health, such as cooking, mindset, nutrition, trauma, and more. It has solo episodes and experts in their specific field, along with a series called Inspiring Stories to show you that you are not alone. You can find this podcast on all listening platforms. He'd never gotten long-term recovery. And he didn't want anybody to know. And I somehow felt like I was supposed to, like, protect that in him. I don't think he ever got six months. Um, He would, like, just relapse for the day. And I remember the first time I came over, I... You can just see it, you know. Um, uh, and I saw it, and I was just like, what the fuck? But I was busy, so the idea of, like, relapsing with him wasn't really on the table, and I had done that in the past with an ex, and that was a bad time. <laughs> that was a bad time. So I just kind of supported him through it and kept it moving, if that makes sense. Um, I don't even know that he told his sponsor about it every time. I know that there were speculations. Um, people had asked me about it, but it wasn't really my story to tell. So I just didn't really tell people when they asked. <sighs> New Year's Day. New Year's Eve, he was still sober. We went to an AA dance and um it was actually really fun all the residents went we just had a good time and then the next day i had to go to the house to do something and it was cold and 
when I got home, he was high. Then we got the flu. We both got really, 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 really sick. My mom had just had it, and she was like in bed for 10 days. And I remember we were working a job site in um, West Philly at this point, and I remember my mom being like laid up for 10 days, and I was like, what the fuck? And then he, he relapsed, and then like two days later, like we couldn't even move. Like we were both so sick. So he was like, I mean, he, there's no way he could have gotten high. It was a tiny apartment, and I would have known if he had even gotten out of the bed. We were laid up for like a solid 10 days, whatever, just like vomiting. And like, we were so fucking sick. I don't know why. And during that time, yeah, we were just sick in bed. And then I got up and I had to go to Myrtlewood to get stuff set up. And yeah, that's it. When you're in recovery, you get used to loss. The other thing that you get used to is recognizing that everybody's use is different. From the person who can have a glass of wine at dinner and not want 10 more and literally never touches any other substance, all the way down to the problematic ill use and misuse of addiction. And that's the thing. Not everybody who struggles with addiction looks the same. Sarah says as much about Pete. I don't know how he did it. Like he would just get high and then just be like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use again. Like I that's not who I am. Like once I pick up, I'm like, yes, I'm going to hell, you know? Uh, he he would just like use one day and then go to a meeting the next day and like not pick up again. I don't know how he did it. Unfortunately, Pete's substance misuse drove a wedge in their relationship and was the topic of conversation the last time that Sarah saw him alive. The last conversation that we had in person was when he came home from his parole officers, and it was a Tuesday. And he was visibly high, you know? And um, we were in the kitchen. We were shouting at each other. And um, I... Uh, I told him to call his sponsor and go to a meeting. Um, I had stuff come into the Savage House and I had to be there. And he was like, going to go to rehab the next day. And I, I remember standing in the kitchen and telling him, You're going to fucking die. If you don't get sober, you're going to fucking die. And um, I was so scared and so angry. And he started to cry and he asked me to come lay down with him. And we went and we laid down in the bed and we both cried. And he was like, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to go to rehab tomorrow. And he asked me to stay, and I couldn't because I had to go do something. And we talked for a couple hours that night because I stayed at Savage that night. And um, we just talked on the phone until like 1 or 2 in the morning. And I, I was like, well, when I get up, I'll come over and uh, take you to rehab. That was it. That was it. 
I should have stayed. She called me hysterical on the phone while I was in calculus class. And I left and went to go see her. And the next few days were a blur. It was just really fucking traumatic. Let me clarify something I said just a few minutes ago. You never actually get used to the death. You just get used to it happening all around you. The family rallied around Sarah, but, I mean, what could they really do in that moment? Here's Liz. Man, Pete was awesome. She was really happy with him. Like, when I saw my sister with Pete, I had never seen her like that with another person ever in my life. And it was just, thank God, you know? I'd never seen her that comfortable and that, that authentic. You know, my, the goofy, lovable little girl that is my sister, she was 100% herself around Pete, and I'd never seen that before, ever. Mac took a much more hands-on role in trying to help Sarah during this dark time. The first thing that I did was I withdrew from classes. I moved in to the Myrtlewood house for a short while and um, basically ran the house because we have these newly sober women and this broken house manager. Like, Sarah did not leave her room. Sarah, I only, I brought her food. I made the food. I cleaned the house. I took the girls to meetings and got them job interviews and I had to go help them buy clothes and groceries and get all the donations. We got like some Whole Foods and we got a shit ton of Panera. Panera was sick at the beginning. It was a lot of bread, but it was like, this will feed you. Right off the bat, literally, yeah, three days into opening the house, it was like, holy shit, the house manager, the leader of our organization needs a break. And so Adam and I and my mom had to step up and take that role. I was super happy to do it. I did volunteer to do it. I was at a position where I was like mentally okay with taking a break from school because I was super overwhelmed. And I was kind of debating it anyway. And then that happened and it was like, okay, this is a sign. I'm doing it. I'm taking the break. I, I, I was a live-in temporary house manager. More after this break. If you guys want to learn more about Savage Sisters, check out www.savagesisters.org. If you'd like to hear more from me and Sarah specifically, please reach out to info at savagesisters.org and we can come speak to you, your organization, your business, or your place of worship on Narcan trainings, harm reduction trainings, or anything in general with Savage Sisters. If you want to donate, please go to savagesisters.org's sponsorship page. There, you can find a plethora of ways to give directly to our cause and help our mission. Additionally, if you want to come volunteer at an outreach, please reach out to info at savagesisters.org so we can give you dates, times, and locations for our outreach events. Thanks, everybody. Stay savage. Hey, y'all. It's Jay, the host of this show. If you're not really enjoying the series and you're just listening to make me happy, then thank you. But for the rest of you, I invite you to check out everything else Choose Your Struggle does in the mental health and drug use advocacy space. We have a couple other podcasts, including our incredibly popular weekly show called Choose Your Struggle. On that show, I interview people with lived and learned experiences on the subjects of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy, but occasionally we talk about other topics as well. 
We also have another new show called Choose Your Struggle Presents Monday Motivation, but it's not just podcasts. We also host two vulnerable storytelling events, Rock Bottom Storytellers in a Day in the Life, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. And now I'm so excited to announce we'll be doing Rock Bottom Storytellers live here in Philly starting this summer. I also have a book coming out hopefully later this year, and I regularly travel the country telling my story and speaking about these important topics. I know this is all a lot, but you can check us out at our website, chooseyourstruggle.com and check out all of our podcasts wherever you're getting this series just by searching for Choose Your Struggle. All right, that's enough about us. Let's get back to the show. When you're in recovery and you experience a traumatic event, the first thing anyone thinks of is, oh no, what if they relapse? Sarah's recent experience certainly qualified. I was suspicious from the day that Pete died that she was, I, I just knew, she, I, I knew she was going to relapse. It was, I, it was just, how could you, I don't know, how could you not finding the person that you love on the, you know, on the ground, dead. That's, I can't fucking imagine it. While these concerns clearly came from a heartfelt place, they were, in essence, elevating a symptom over the original disease. Here's Sarah. After I found Pete dead, I never, I didn't go back. My family packed all my stuff. The next time that I was in that apartment, it was empty. It had been repainted and it was for rent. And I just went in and laid on the floor where he died and cried for a really long time and then walked away from that building and never went back. Um, I officially moved into the house on Myrtlewood. And so we kind of did this like makeshift finished bedroom in the basement that I lived in. And then the three bedrooms were with residents. And I did that for a few months. And then um, a lot of the residents went away for Easter in late April. And I was like, I'm going to kill myself. I'd lost a significant amount of weight. I just wasn't happy. I was miserable. And I hated everybody in AA. <laughs> I was sick and tired of people asking about Pete. There were like terrible rumors that they were saying about Pete that like I was there when he died and like didn't Narcan him. And like it was just like overwhelmingly fucked. And so um, I went to my favorite place and I shot up and didn't die. There was no relief in the relapse, I should say. I just wanted everything to go quiet. I wanted to s stop being uh, on the floor, you know, holding Pete. And I wanted to stop hating myself for not being there. And I couldn't. And I thought that just dying would be easier. Just dying. And I didn't die. And so then I was just back on the wheel. This is such an awful story, but it's a great example of why focusing on the relapse is only seeing the literal tip of the iceberg. Unfortunately for those around Sarah, that's sort of what it took for anyone to notice. Here's Georgie. Sarah was, she had pulled away from all of us. I remember whenever I'd see her, she'd always have glasses on. She would never take her glasses off. I would say to Adam, I'd be like, oh, 
do you think? And he'd say, oh, you know, yeah, maybe. Eventually, it became so obvious that Sarah was struggling that everybody did take notice. And they snapped into action. Here's Adam. She said she'd go to rehab in the morning. And um, I called my sister Mac and the rest of my family, told them I was going over there. Um, and then I was kidnapping her. And uh, that's what me and, me and Mac did. We showed up that night. She thought we were going to wait until the morning. Um, but we showed up that night. Here's Mac. Yeah, I was at work. Adam calls me. I just was like, what the fuck are you calling me at 1 a.m. for? And he was like, ah, dude, I'm sorry. I, Sarah relapsed. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh, she had like just gotten a year, like super recently. We were so excited. So obviously, as always, I was the one to get in the car because I was the only one that ever had access to a car and drove from work to South Philly and I had to sleep there overnight. Uh, she cursed me out so hard. She was like, just fucking leave. I hate you. I hate Adam. I hate mom. What the fuck is wrong with this family? You guys are like vultures. You're a bitch. I knew she was high when she called me a bitch, but not in the nice way. Not like, ha, bitch. No, she'd be like, you're a fucking bitch. And it was like, okay, I know that you're high then. <laughs> Throughout all of this, no matter what anybody else said, Sarah never lost sight on what she thought truly mattered. She was hurting and she needed help. You know, everybody just associates when the needle hit my neck. And that wasn't when I was struggling. That was when I got to the point where I broke down. And then I immediately went to rehab, you know? So it's like those months where I wasn't eating and I was miserable and alone in a basement, that was the painful part, not the part where I got high. And nobody was there for that. You know, everybody was there once I injected. It was like I had to take it to that level for anybody to even notice that, like, I was alive and that, like, I was dying. I lost, like, almost 30 pounds without drugs. I weigh 140. You can look at pictures of me during that time. I started drinking in shores. I, I had no, I'd never experienced depression to the point where you don't have an appetite. That's just, I'm an eater. I don't have an eating disorder. I don't punish myself with food I wasn't punishing myself I literally couldn't eat um and I think that everybody just kind of it's a lot easier when you're a heroin addict for people to just say well it was the drugs it wasn't the drugs is what helped me get better because it's when people started saying Sarah needs help next time on made it I definitely didn't want to do it because I was so angry and like it was so humbling, but I did it. Thanks for listening. Made It Season 1, Stay Savage is a Choose Your Struggle production and a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. I'm Jay Schiffman, your narrator, producer, and founder of Choose Your Struggle. Special thanks to Lauren Schiffman and Steve Schiffman for their help on this show. The theme song was composed by me and built on the song All That by Ben Sound. The Made It theme you hear in episode 10 was composed by Lettuce and Rob Devious. All interviews for this show were given freely and no payment was received by anyone for providing an interview for this show. All views expressed by those interviewed are their own. For more info, please see your show notes or learn more at chooseyourstruggle.com.